Our sermon today is from Ephesians 2, 10 to 13. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, I don't want to do that. There's a proverb I'm fond of. It's from the book of Job, and you have to be careful quoting the book of Job because Job is actually a bunch of mouthpieces talking to each other. It's hard to suss out in that particular book what is God speaking. But the, the, the proverb I'm about to share with you, it's, it's a favorite of mine, but man is born to trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward. Now, the sparks flying upward. I, 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 I like that. That's something I like about that. Because, it, all right. So, what's why does an author do something? Why does it? Why does he do that? Why, why, why make that image? Because it seems like he wants to say that human behavior is a bit like physical behavior. He seems to be saying that there's something in the world, something about our moral self and who we exist as moral people and the troubles we have, that is a lot like physics. It's a lot like when you, you drop an object, it falls. In other words, he is claiming for this idea that you and I are in for trouble, right here in River City, I can't believe I just said that, for trouble, it's right there in the scriptures, it's gathering its heels. It's like a law of the spiritual world. Okay, so what does that have to do with our text today? I, I think this text, this text is coming out of an idea, of a concept, of a, of a, back, of, of a kind of an assumption <laughs> about trouble. Take a look at what I mean here, uh, in, actually, in the text. If you look at the scriptures, there's three ways that we are described B.C., before Christ, before Jesus gets in, before God's love enters our lives. And this is the description. You were separated from Christ, separated, that's one of them, 12. But then there was another one here, you were, uh, have no hope and without God in the world. Strangers to the covenant of promise, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's trouble. Uh, when my parents became Christians, you know, many of you know this story, some of you guessed, but they were hippies. And here we, we had never been to school. We we're living out in the woods, and mom and dad get in their heads, though, that they're Christians now, so we're going to read the Bible together. So everybody sits down, they start reading the Bible to us. Right? Genesis 1-1, just going right through. That has quite an effect on you as a kid, especially when you 
you're, just, you're hearing these stories for the first time. This is all brand thinking new. And I remember thinking, Adam and Eve got off kind of easy. I'm going to be honest with you. I remember thinking, didn't God say he was going to kill them? Didn't he say they were going to die? Did, and as a kid, you're sitting there, they don't die. <laughs> they, they didn't die. It, 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 and I remember being a little confused by it and, 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 and thinking into myself, well, well, what is the... And, and I remember adults explaining it to me, but it seemed a little bit like a cheat. Like, oh, no, they died spiritually. I'm like, who's <laughs> scared of that? You know, like, like that, didn't, that didn't seem threatening to me. That didn't seem that awful. You know, it's funny. I, I think that that mistake about the scriptures persists into adulthood a lot of times. And in fact, I think that the, the, the naivete about what God says about us, what our Father, what, what, the, what the scriptures claim about who we are, the way it's being described almost offhand in this text, we were without, this is who you were before Christ. We knew in previous verses he described us as children of wrath. He's, even more, he's been even more explicit, but right here in this moment, yeah, he's talking about this trouble. I guess as I've gotten older now, and, and, and now as I, I think as an older man, as a pastor, as I think the Spirit's done this, as I've begun to see the work of my own sin in my heart, like, like the depths of my own kind of corruption that I witness in me, I just, I began, to, I was reading the text again and realized we don't grasp just how catastrophic a moment that is. Like it's catastrophic. It, without hope, without God, in all the cosmos, separated aliens to God. Okay, there's a way we can kind of describe this. Actually, uh, literary motifs give us a, give us a, give us a handle. Classically, in literary motifs, man is in conflict. Man is in trouble, right? That's, that's all, all stories are about trouble. That's what makes them interesting. <laughs> Some kind of trouble our hero finds himself in and gets himself out of it. So, so, so the, the, the motifs of struggle, though, have been analyzed. And one of the classic ones, and one of the ones that's right here, it's man against the divine. You know, man versus God. And where does our trouble begin? It's right there. Without God. <laughs> no God. And the first one is this, and, and it's interesting, the scriptures, they go, they, even Ephesians is going to go further to describe it's not merely you who has trouble with God. God's got trouble with you. <sighs> and there's a problem with this fundamental enmity between the created thing and he who created him. Okay, 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 okay. But let's keep going. So you have man versus the divine. Then you also have man versus nature. Man versus the cosmos. Man versus the universe. By the way, where are we without hope and without God? In the text? In the cosmos. In the universe. In this context. This next thing, this next scripture is described this. Man is not also, you and I are not also in this, in this mutual enmity between us and the divine. No, it's also we're also against the natural order of things. That's twofold. The scripture says that this stuff is suffering because of you and me. 
Like if it had a voice, if the air could speak, if wood could talk, it would just go, ah, because of us. Because of us. Pollution always seems to be, or maybe, maybe global warming, well, the way we're destroying things, it seems to be destroying and ripping apart the very world that's a gift to us. Even as we're aware of it, even as we know what we're doing and doing it. Man, trouble with the cosmos and conflict. Another, another thing I kind of hooked on to a little bit was this expression, without hope. Without hope. Because man is in conflict with God. He's in conflict with the reality of things around him. And he's also in conflict with himself. <laughs> it's internal, right? He hates himself. I was talking to a good friend of mine who was confessing to me recently. Body dysmorphia. You know? this, this feeling that so, so many... It's amazing how many people had this. I, I had it as a kid that I always felt like my body was made for somebody else. Have you ever felt like that? Like you were in somebody else's body, like you never got used to how clump, ow. I just, I actually just hurt myself. You see, that's me. That's, I'm constantly, I'm an oaf, right? It's like I never really grew up into this body. I am at odds with myself. But that dysmorphia, you see it all around us. People wanting to scar, right? And I was a poor girl. This one young lady, how do you? You're appealing to them not to scar. Why, do, why does she want to scar? Because the events of the fall were catastrophic. And the problem is, it, visually, it didn't look that different. Adam and Eve were still Adam and Eve, and they were, they were still able to walk, and they still, it didn't look, but, but, but underneath, the intern, the, how do we know this? How, do we, how can we be so sure Make no mistake, make no mistake that the scriptures describe the first event of sin after the fall. Sin after the fall. The first great sin after the fall is what? What's the first great crime after having disobeyed God in this simple matter of a tree? Murder, not just murder. Fratricide, not just, get this guys. Thanksgiving was never the same after that. Now you say they didn't have Thanksgiving. Get the point. The first family's first creation and firstborn is a killer. Stone cold. That's the fruit of all of that alienation I just described. What am I saying here? Well, the scriptures go on from, it's interesting. The scriptures go on, they go on, they go on, they go on. They go to tell the story of people of God. First was Cain, Cain and Abel in this conflict. The next great conflict is Joseph and his brothers. By the way, it's in the kingdom. It's in the kingdom. It's inside the promised people, God right there. Next great conflict is people in the wilderness. Next great conflict after that, the civil war with Rehoboam and the people of God divide because, because of the final enmity, right? So Ted and I meet or... Jack meets with me and Joy. We all, that's, we all meet together. And every one of us brings what? To, it, to whatever meeting we have. We're against, uh, we're against God. The trouble we've had with our own bodies. The trouble we've had in our own hearts. The and we bring all that together. And what do we create with one another? Again and again and again. Exponentially, it would seem. 
more trouble. <laughs> it's, just, it's crazy. You know, as I look out in this generation right now, and when um, one, of the, one of the judgments of God in Revelation is just, he doesn't do anything. God doesn't have to do anything to judge us. It's like Revelation just says one of the horsemen does this. Just removes peace. It's like God took, it's like peace was in the room. I'll just take peace out. I'll take the peace out of that room. And you know what happens? All that trouble, all that trouble with God that we all have, all that trouble with ourselves and nature. and our, We all start attacking each other. Now, uh, this is all a prelude because this is all build up to call you to faith and joy and hope in Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's funny, I, the build up here, in a sense, the build up here, in a sense, was to present to you uh, the, the scripture's case for why wickedness is what it is and what it does and how catastrophic the whole collapse truly is. That's the premise that sets us up. Now, I want to I confess something here. Because I think with this, first, with this first point, with this first argument that I'm presenting is supposed to describe, it's simply the absolute fundamental crying, aching necessity. Grace. He's got to be gracious. He's got to show grace. He's got to come in from the outside with grace. It's got to be a but God moment. God has to come in. He has to act. And it's interesting. If you look at verse 10, it's all God acting. For God is working you, right? You are God's workmanship. And it's this idea. And you know what's funny what my confession is? Where I picked the text. Do you know what, what verse did I begin? I began with verse 10 because I thought it was time to get along in the text. I was just going to, I need to get along in the text. You know, Joyce is glaring at me and how my wife's asking me when we're going to move and everybody's kind of going, you know, it's tired of me preaching one word at a time. Okay. I shouldn't have cut off the previous two verses. though. I think the fact that I cut them off shows something about your pastor. And it shows something about us, maybe as you were like me, perhaps. And that is, I don't always connect grace with the ongoing obedience of the Christian. Did you, you see by me separating those, maybe you don't know the previous verses. Let me remind you. For it is by grace you were saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast. For we are God's workmanship. And you know what I realized? I, 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 the blunder I made by, by starting the text of verse 10 instead of verse 8 reflects my own immaturity. What, what, what am I reflecting on here? <sighs> I opened up by trying to prove how much we need grace. And you know what? The argument doesn't stop. We keep needing it. We keep needing it. We need a grace that was, that does what? That recreates us. Look at the language. We were created in Christ Jesus. This is the language from the previous sets of verses. This is a work done by our Father sovereignly from the outside as a gift to us and for us. And when I love the idea here, I was saved. I was rescued by faith and grace alone. And you know what? I'm going to be holy the same way. Praise Him. You see, it's interesting to me that verse 10 follows verse 8 and 9. 
Isn't it, isn't it it's interesting that the, that, the, that the verse that promises that the possibility, as amazing as it sounds, that clay could be doing godly things, right, is, is predicated on what? That clay has been saved by grace. And the principle of grace is alive in the world with power. It can't help it. God loves sinners. And where God's love for sinners is active, I've seen it, when God's love for sinners gets distilled inside the wickedness of this soul, when by faith I see the Son of God and his love, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I actually want to be good. And you know, that's always my problem. I don't like being good. I'm not any good at it. I think it's me and my... The little conversation I have with our father-in-law. I'm not even good at being good. <laughs> That's my complaint. What do I find active as I fall in love with my Savior and the knowledge of his love for sinners? That it's all by grace I have been saved. Oh, that it's by grace that I have continued to truck on. And it is by grace that I've been able to be good. Or even want goodness itself. What a what a savior and what a salvation. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know what this says is. You know what this means. You know what this means for me. Maybe this doesn't, maybe this isn't radiant for you because it's easier for you to be good, but I don't know how to be good. I'm telling you, as your pastor, I don't know how to be righteous. I don't like it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work for me. And I always want to tear my hair on and run screaming into the night until I know my savior is all my righteousness. And he's making me into a person who's his workmanship. And here I am proclaiming to you the love of Jesus for sinners. And I, I was taught that because God showed me how great my sin was. What a, what a Savior. And this way I can love you and, te- and, 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 and call you to grace call you to trust. Isn't it wonderful that living with God is more of trusting him? You know, Galatians had this messed up. Paul, Paul was so frustrated with him. And in Galatians 3, he says something very, very peculiar. He said, you began with the Holy Spirit. You began, right? Who lied to you? Where'd you go? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to finish it up with the flesh? You're going to finish it up with your own effort? You're going to become the righteous man that you need to be out of necessity or willpower or drive or discipleship or being berated or hating myself. Whatever, whatever strategy you want to pick, go ahead. They're all out there. There's a smorgasbord of them. What I hope to do next week by God's grace is I want to take that, that, that line, that, that verse 10. I think that verse 10 is Psalm 139, restated. <laughs> it's, this, it's one of the great poems of the Old Testament presented to us in a very digested and very, uh, I would say, almost, uh, what do you call it, abstracted form, the way Paul does in his letters. But Psalm 139, it's all about an invitation. That's what this text is, an invitation into an intimate sovereignty. All right, so what does faith by grace get us? It gets us saved, cleansed, purified. It sets us up now to be and to act and to enact a sovereign holiness that God has created in us. Wow! I'm a, you're a part of that? We're a part of that? 
The premise is, is that, that that's only possible that way because of our wickedness. Even our goodness falls into the trap of being a goodness for ourselves, right? Even, you know, I was thinking about this today. You know, God led me to, uh, into a place of prayer in my heart. I'm really thankful for it. And I, I got up this morning to pray. And it occurred to me, what if my prayer is an offense to God? Like, what if, what if I'm just so offensive to you? Because I know I pray for things for me. Some, like, I pray, I have all sorts of evil reasons why I pray. I have, you know, they're about me, about getting what I want. And I was, just, I was lamenting it. And, I was, and, and that felt so stuck, you know, to get so stuck where even my attempt to pray could be just another attempt to trick God. And, and, and I, even as I was thinking that stuff, I realized, who can trick the Almighty? Who am I? I have been embraced by a vitally personal sovereignty. Works prepared for poor him. What does this mean? A part of the, tri- part of the work of grace, as we discover the necessity of grace, is the, it, its triumph. Is its triumph. Is what it creates in us. Um, um, I remember, um, you ever heard the expression, um, I had a divine appointment today? You ever heard that? And, and that's an old school, it means that you had a chance to share the gospel. It meant you had a chance to bear witness to somebody else about who Jesus was. That was a divine appointment. But as a pastor, you you begin to see something globally in your life. And I think this text is talking about it. Where I don't know where the divine appointments end and stop. I don't know where they begin or stop. I there aren't. I have nothing. You you have nothing but divine appointments. Don't you know that? We live in the, in the presence and the power and the grip and the work and the, and the, and the awesome, yeah, awesome power of a personally realized sovereignty. It's, the, work, the word there for workmanship is poieia. It's the word for poem. Have you ever written, you've written poetry? And you craft over a word. And it's, what a beautiful picture of an intimately connected sovereignty appointing your days and your moments for your gross and godliness. All of a sudden, as I began to get this bigger vision of it, I had eyes to see it and a heart to act on it, to start praying for the ability to perceive these things for what they are. You know, it's interesting. When somebody told me, oh, you had a divine appointment, you know what I started doing? I started paying more attention because I kept thinking, oh, wow, maybe God's got an appointment for me today. You know, like, and I started watching the meetings that were happening. But now I'm here to tell you that, yeah, watch every meeting. <laughs> Even the guy that cuts you off. That was a divine appointment. What was the appointment for? Maybe just to teach you just how ugly a sinner you really are still after you give the person the bird, you know, while the worship music playing in the car. <laughs> We do things like this, right? We do crazy things like this and foolish things like this. And they come out of us. What did they prove? Again and again, we're walking into divine appointments. You know, in that, point, in that moment where I, where I get angry at somebody cutting me off, I have a moment to see God's grace for a sinner like me again and go, wow, you love people like me? <gasps> Thank you, Father. Thank you. You see, what, what would happen right there? 
That's some of his poetry. That's his workmanship. He's crafting, working, establishing. But something else is happening here. And this is what I want to close with. We're going we're to we're be spending some time on this. Ephesians is actually about a problem the church was having. Problem the church was having. The early church had a problem. And the problem I just built the entire first part of this message establishing. Christians not getting along with other Christians. Especially Christians who were old in the faith, who knew God a long time, being annoyed at young Christians who were very different, had different ideas. And the way that kind of broke down in the ancient world was between the Greeks and the Jews. That's the way it kind of broke down and talking about circumcision and about all that. But really, really what that was about, because those, those tensions persist to this day. They, they are still in the church where people who are established in religious don't like the sinners coming in or don't want them or are afraid of them or afraid they're going to lose something. Or, or, and there's all sorts of ways these continue to work themselves out. And you know what is amazing to me? That, that right there, it starts talking about unity between us and the old believers, and you were far off and brought near, and all of a sudden I hear it. Works prepared beforehand. Works prepared beforehand. And where do you begin? Right here. The works prepared beforehand are your relationships. In my relationship with you, Cecil, Cedric, I'm sorry, Cecil was another guy who read the Christ. Cedric was this, right? This is our sacred charge. This is it. This is part of his workmanship. We are his workmanship. You know what's invisible in the text? And this is where the nuances of the Greek really need to be opened. All those yous are in the plural. This is, for, this is for a group. This is to be realized by a community, for a community. And works prepared beforehand are not abstract sentiments merely or just, just worship or some ecstatic moment. They're just acts of service and love to others and showing up in their lives in, in, in truly meaningful and I think increasingly sacrificial ways. What's happening there? You know what I begin to act like and talk like? This sour, mean-spirited, depressed old pastor? I start to sound like my savior. I didn't even mean to. And uh, created in Christ. Yes, yes, the text is coming true. It is written. Here was written out for us. And the text is coming true. And so I think there's right here in this moment, uh, if you can hear the y'all instead of this, the you, but the y'all that's in here, the y'all are God's workmanship, that we can, we can start praying and hoping for this, for this scripture to be really fulfilled in us. I mean, deeply fulfilled. Do you know the scripture is being fulfilled all the time? That's why Jesus was always pointing it out. <laughs> well, this is to fulfill this, and this is to fulfill that, and this is, and you all got it. You know what this is? You know what this, this is all to fulfill what God would intended when he said, I'm going to make Jack and Ted together my, my poem, my, my work, my masterpiece, my, my bride, my, my church, my people, my glory, my a revelation of my grace. Hmm. Man is born to trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward. Now that introduced the concept of some cause and effect physics happens in the spiritual world. 
Well, let me comfort you then. As sure as the sparks fly upward, as sure as the physics of sparks represent the trouble my soul will create, I can be just as sure that the blood of my Savior is a sure remedy and a sure cleansing of all my sin. It's the same thing. As surely as the Son of God died, I am a redeemed man by faith in his blood. Praise the Lord! The same sort of physics continues. The same sort of realities are true. Let's just lay hold of them together. You know, better yet, let's ask God, let's ask our Father in His grace to make us just this workmanship we're describing. Let's pray.